Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Show. Attempt du at getting started today. We've both had some technical changes this week. I've switched around my gear. Damon has switched around his old office. How's yeah, your new place? Handhole setup chain. It's nice. This is really nice because now I won't have to like take everything down and put everything back when I do different stuff. And no wires I'm tripping over. Everything's just going to stay exactly where it's at. It's going to be awesome. It's pretty handy. Uh, and you've yeah. got one massive advantage in your recording setup over mine, which is an yeah. American-European thing. Well, because yeah. you can record all of your video and audio direct into your camera and just let it roll for like the yeah. whole hour. Whereas yeah. mine, because of some like EU duty restriction, so they don't get taxed as like video cameras or whatever. <laughs> they all have to cut out after 29 minutes and 59 seconds because otherwise they become video cameras, which apparently makes them more expensive. I'd just rather pay what I'm sure yeah. is like 1% extra <laughs> just yeah. to have the camera that works properly. That'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, we're continuing today our series on the fascinating origin of everyday things, right? Everyday foods today. But now we're well, switching I see it's labeled food. as part one. This. Yeah, this one's food origins. Uh, and we'll come back to some other uh, non-food items, but I just wanted to do a food one to mix it up a little bit. You know, at some point, we're going to have to rename our podcast The Fascinating Origin of Things. Yeah, yeah pretty much. At this rate, at least. Mm-hmm. Are we doing the normal structure? Quick fact. Then what yeah. everyone tunes in for, a word from our sponsors. And well, then, uh, they wouldn't the be tuning concept. in if we didn't have the sponsors. So, you know, it works out for everyone. That's true. Oh, what? Because we need the money or because the sponsor spots are just so incredible? That's what people want. Or just, you know, because you know, <laughs> these take a lot of time and we like that's to, true. you know, get paid sometimes. It's nice. Yeah, I know. I love getting paid. It's, it's yeah, a especially nice Especially when you spend like several days on something. It's like, yeah, it's nice to, you know, make that worth your while. Yeah, it's true. It's like the medium of exchange. I, I have this ongoing joke with my wife about money. And it's always like, yeah, I need to go to the cash machine to get money. And I always finish it with to purchase goods and services. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just become like a meme between me and my wife. It's always like, yeah, to purchase goods and services. I don't know why. It's, it's less funny when it's not a meme between the couple. <laughs> but let's just move on. Tell me the quick fact. Wait, before we do that, we should mention our review contest. Oh, yeah. I'm literally not doing my one job. Um, <laughs> If you, uh, if you want to review this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, be that iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher. I'm going to stop naming podcast platforms because I won't remember them all. But when we get to a thousand reviews on the US Apple Podcast Store, what are we at now? Like 500? 600? Yeah, it's around like there. It doesn't really matter. When we get to a thousand, we're going to give away a thousand dollar Amazon gift card to someone who has left us a review, not just on American iTunes, but on the big iTunes that we will check. If you're listening from Rwanda, maybe log in under a UK or US account and leave us a review that way because we're probably not going to check Rwanda's iTunes store. Nothing against Rwanda. Just I don't imagine we've got many reviews there. And also probably Stitcher none, and all no. of those other... No, you don't think? No. I would check, but no. I don't want to. Even like even like India, which you'd think we would have like more... But I think India, it's just Dhruv. It's just Dhruv that's uh, giving us the review. Dhruv's our, the guy who does ours, who finds us our sponsors. He's the who only makes, reviewer. Who makes that's this podcast sad. possible. Yeah, it's true. He gave um, us five yeah. stars though, so that works out. I feel like I'd be, hey Dhruv, what's up, man? <laughs> you only gave <laughs> us three stars? Two stars, Dhruv? Yeah, so um, please do that. We'd appreciate it. Doesn't have to be a five-star review, although it's obviously preferred. You can leave us whatever you fancy. And uh, have I done all my duty now or is there something else I'm forgetting to do? No, that's good. <laughs> okay, we can, good. We can carry on. on. Let's good. jump into the facts. Quick fact. Yeah. That's what we're going to start with. So depending on your knowledge of curdled cow excretions, you might think that cheddar cheese is supposed to be yellow or orange like that deep. Uh, is it in in Europe? Is it like that kind of orange yellow orange, color? Yeah. 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 Okay. I wasn't sure if it was um, still I'll, like it. I assume it's fake, right? Because it's yeah, way too yeah. orange. And it started in like Britain was like the big one to start it. But so it turns out that, of course, milk is white. So why would the cheddar cheese made from milk, why, why would that suddenly be turned orange, like a really deep shade of orange? I don't know. I want to say food dye, but I'm guessing it was originally some other actual reason why. So they, they did have a reason. But so first, okay. before we get into that, just because it's kind of interesting, why is milk white in the first place? And it turns out uh, milk is made of about 87% water and then 13% solids. And these are just like fats and proteins and stuff. And then one of the proteins is casein, which is uh, makes up about 80% of the proteins in milk. And these mm-hmm. molecules um, 
they end up repelling each other because they're negative electrical charge. So they distribute very evenly within the milk, just sort of naturally. That's why even yeah. if the milk just sits there, they don't all like settle at the bottom or whatever. And then like milk is, together. This sounds like a stupid thing to say, but milk is super white. Yeah. Like when you look at milk, you know, you look at a lot of other things like a cup of tea or whatever. Very few things appear to be, you know, just so purely white and evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it sounds dumb, yeah. but milk is re- really white. <laughs> well, and especially liquids, because most of the time when you have these solids and liquids so much solids, they'll just separate kind of settle at the bottom or separate. And whatnot. It doesn't really happen in milk too much. I mean, like you get like the unpasteurized milk and stuff. You'll get like the cream on the top and stuff like that that does happen. But in Which general, this what the reason why the proteins kind of stay fairly evenly distributed is just because of this negative electro- electrical charge that the casein protein molecules have. So they just kind of yeah. stay evenly distributed. And these um, basically scatter light, um, deflect the light somewhat uniformly through the visual spectrum, which then makes, of course, milk appear white to our eyes and sort of consistently white through the whole thing. So coming back to cheddar. Milk is very white. Do, yeah. How do you get then from that to this orangish color? And it turns out in like classically, when you're when you have like cows and stuff before the industrial revolution, basically, you'd have the cows, they'd just be grazing in the field and the farmers go and milk them and everything. And grass, it turns out, is super rich in beta carotene. And so that will then lend some of this beta carotene, of course, like you think like carrots or whatever. I have a lot of that. It's this oh, kind of, of course. Orange. Yeah, that's immediately what came to mind when you mentioned yeah. this chemical. Well, pigment, which actually, uh, carrots used to be purple before, I think it was the 17th century. And Did then like a video the, or a podcast about that. Yeah, I feel like, like I know years that. Yeah. ago, years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so this was like the Dutch who eventually cultivated. There was orange carrots out there, but they were like wild carrots and there's different color carrots like that. But they cultivated this like orange one that we all know and just sort of became the super popular one. Thanks to them. Um, anyways, so lots of beta carotene like is the point. purple carrots could be like a niche item these days. You know, did you guys get purple ketchup a while back? When I was a kid, no, there was purple ketchup so. as a thing. That's weird. And it tasted exactly the same. It was just dyed like deep purple. Well, the interesting thing about that one too is is mustard. Everyone thinks of mustard as yellow, but mustard, the actual seeds, and when it, when it's in its natural form, is not that bright yellow. It's uh, brown, it, right? It's, yeah, it's sort of a more of a brownish, little bit yellow tinge. But we think of it like this bright yellow, and that is just dyed. They dye it for you know just cosmetic reasons. It look, I suppose maybe it looks awesome with the ketchup. You know, you got this bright red ketchup and then yellow dye for the yeah. mustard. Well, but, Anyways, yeah. Uh, hang on. Do you call, is American mustard in America just mustard? Because we have a specific American mustard, which is that very yellow, you'd put it on a hot dog yeah. sort of thing. Do you just call that mustard? Yeah, that's, we would just call that mustard, yeah. Because we have English mustard and we also call it English mustard. Oh, what, what's the difference? Because there's like French mustard, American mustard, you know, whole grain mustard, all of the different types. Whole I'm grain sure, mustard. Like, we call English mustard. Oh, dude, whole grain mustard. You've not had this? No. Next time, I'm bringing you some whole grain mustard. Oh, it's like, it's the mustard seed and it's kind of got uh-huh. this mustardy stuff around it. It's awesome if you put it like on a sandwich or like in a hot dog, you just spread it on the mm. bread before you put it on. Oh, dude, it's legit. Amazing. I will bring you some. Okay. Good. All right. Where were, where on, were we were talking about? Mustard tangent. Yeah. So the grass has lots of beta carotene in it uh, going back there. And so the, the pastures, the cows would just eat it and whatnot. And so this would then get sort of some of the, um, it would create these like fatty globules uh, that mm-hmm. would bind to the proteins and everything. And so the bottom line from all of that, without getting too technical, is then you'd have like a slightly yellowish tinge to the milk, like just really like a, like a little bit of a subtle golden color, which you can think like um, like a butter, but like a really light butter type of look is what this, this is sort of the natural with these cows. So then when you, you, so you'd have this like slight golden color and then when you condense it down, you make the, the, um, rennet, that's what it's called. I can't find my place, but it doesn't matter. That's the word I was looking for. So when you get the, um, the, you're making the cheese, you add the rennet and, um, and the heat and everything. And then you make the cheddar and then this will, this will ultimately get condensed down the way all squeezed out and everything. So it makes that slightly golden color a little bit more golden in the end product, but you're still looking at like a mostly white product, right? In this Mm -hmm. cheddar cheese. Starting around the 16th or 17th century in England, some industrious cheese makers decided to start skimming some of the fat off to make it more a little bit more, a little bit more like mozzarella, which has a, about uh, about half or so. It's like 17% or something like that. Mozzarella oh, yeah. has um, of, of the fats versus like 32% in cheddar. Uh, so they just started skimming it off, but then making it, preparing it just like you do a cheddar. And so you started getting these more like whiter, less slightly golden cheddar and it's still at this point even when we're talking about that golden color we're not talking about the orange that we're used to today 
Uh, so they would do they would do this, but then to then get it back to the color that people expected, they would add a little bit of dye, and so they would add various pigments in, and they might use like carrot juice and whatnot. But um, yeah, yeah, and marigold petals also is a good way, um, saffron. Uh, but what most people ultimately settled on is a really cheap little seed containing um, pigments. It was called anatto, I think is how you pronounce that, um, and that cool. will turn your turn turn it like depending on how much you add, it'll turn it like slightly yellowish orange a little bit. So this is what they did to get it back to the color it, it, people expected of the higher fat content ones. So they sort of masked that they were just making it, you know, taking some of the the fat off to sell as like cream and stuff like that. Um, I so like the, I like that, you know, everyone today complains about, oh, you know, the food's so fake. There's all these artificial colors and stuff. And it's like, yo, this was the 16th and 17th century. Yeah. We've been doing this a while. Yeah, that's why you had all those. You have those really strict laws in like Britain and stuff about with concerning bread making and stuff because people were like adding all sorts of things to it to get to cut down on like the flour but still get the weight right and stuff like that. Yeah, they were adding all sorts of like weird extra ingredients to kind of bulk it out. And then it's like, oh, we should probably stop poisoning people. Wasn't there was like some excise of something act that made super penalties? Yeah, yeah, like insanely, like you murder someone or something. It, it was it was crazy. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So people were doing this, like you say, for some time. It's my thoughts on it's my thoughts on graffiti and tagging. Like if you just introduce, like, yeah, you know, if you're caught graffitiing, we'll just execute you. Graffitiing <laughs> would drop really quickly. I don't know. I live in a city that is just ravaged by graffiti. Like, I swear, a month will go by, they'll repaint the outside of my building, and suddenly there'll be graffiti there again. And I'm like, this kind of sucks. So they're always just repainting. It's awesome. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. really believe yeah. that people should be executed for graffiti, just to make that clear. But I do yeah. see why people introduce like super strict, especially in the past, they introduced super strict penalties. Anyway. So this sort of continued. You got the industrial revolution happening and they started, um, you know, this problem started getting worse. And so they just started like gradually over time for marketing reasons. Apparently people just prefer the orange to yellow. They just started getting more orange and yellow, like the, like a deeper shades for cheddar mm. versus some of the other cheeses, which are more white. And the, that just sort of caught on and now is just sort of what people expect. But it also, in, in modern times particularly, but especially because of the Industrial Revolution, it actually, they became, there was more reason than just like agri-fraud, basically. Because at a certain point, when you have all these cows, when you start, you know, bringing in milk from all sorts of different areas, different cows and everything like that, if you want a very consistent colored product and, and, and whatnot, you, you're mixing this together and then one batch of cheese that you might make might be one color and then, you know, from a different batch of cows and milk from another area might be a slightly different. So to get the get the color all uniform within a brand, which people were keen on doing, they would just add the make it like a deeper shade as well. And that would just ensure that like all their cheese product, all their cheddar cheese would look the exact same regardless of mm -hmm. what milk was coming in and different different cattle too, like Jersey cattle and stuff produce like a richer colored milk and, you know, depending on what they're eating. And then when, when particularly you start going to the dry fed cattle, which in certain times of year, that's what they're getting. And then some places that's kind of all they feed their cattle. Uh, then you, you'll actually get almost like a pure white cheddar just naturally. Cause there's not, they're not really eating much beta carotene at all. Um, and so basically just to keep everything consistent, a lot of places will just add this dye to make it like a deep rich color. Now that I really think about it, I don't think our cheddar is orange. I think the cheap yeah. cheddar you buy is orange mm -hmm. and it's like this deep orange. But I'm just thinking, yeah. no, most cheddar that I buy, because I like, you know, the mature cheddar and I'm fancy. Oh, yeah. It's a yeah. little bit more expensive and it's white mm -hmm. or it's like very light yellow. Yeah. And they might be doing I that because nowadays. I might just be crazy. No, well, no, I think when you do age it more, it, it does. Um, but it might be just because it's the more expensive type. They might. Nowadays, it's reversed where people think like, oh, white cheddar. Like it's like a premium, you know, so you yeah, pay a little it's more. It's got less uh, additives and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's really just kind of like if they just you know, did it if they just did it normally. And so, yeah, especially if they're dry feeding, it'll, it'll turn like almost completely white. I mean, butter manufacturers do this exact same thing. If you have like a really like yellowy butter, that's definitely they're adding something to that. Because especially nowadays with the like, again, with the, the cows that are eating a lot of, of dry feed and stuff, it tends to be very white, like like and, you know, it's still fine. It, there's a little bit uh, versus like the grass fed and stuff. There is a little bit less of um nutritional value and everything but at the same time they can get a more consistent tasting product because again if you got this wide variety of diet depending on region stuff and cattle uh that can mm. actually change the change the flavor and, and brands don't like that so they like to try to keep it consistent so if you make sure all the cattle are eating the exact same thing and you know that sort of thing it helps but we love our consistency yeah yeah 
as, as humans, as a species. Uh, is that the end of our quick fact? That is the end of the quick fact today. Oh, then this is what you've all been waiting for, guys. Blinkist. I got to tell you about Blinkist. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. If you're one of the first 100 people to go to Blinkist.com forward slash brain food, you'll get to try Blinkist for one week for free. You'll also get 25% off if you want the full membership. But right now, you've got no idea what Blinkist is unless you watch our YouTube channel, in which case you probably heard me talk about it before. Blinkist is an app. Look, I know it's not always easy to sit down, read a full book, even listen to a full book. You know, I'm a pretty busy dude. Dave, are you busy? Not busy at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> Damn it, man. Just say you're busy. I did pull David an all-nighter. Busy. The, yes, he is the busiest man. <laughs> I was up for 27 hours straight working on a video. So, you know. Yeah. David is busy. And that's why I'm going to, I got to, I got to get my phone running. I'm really sorry if it's doing, you know, that thing, because it's probably going to do that. But let me just open the app and I can just show people what this does. Okay. So what you do is with Blinkist, you can look on their homepage here and there's lots of different options. And then you pick one. Uh, have you read The Snowball, Damon, by Warren Buffett? It's I have like read his... that book. Yeah. Okay. It's a great book. It's an it absolute beast. I listened to the audio version. I swear that thing is like 20 hours or something. With Blinkist, they compress it down into like 15 minutes. And what you do is you can either read it and then they divide it into blinks. So you go through and uh, you have these different options here and you can just read them. Or if you're like, I don't like reading, or maybe you can't even read. Maybe that's why you're listening to a podcast because you know, you're one of the 0.1% people who aren't literate somehow in that case, or more realistically, you're just on the, you know, way to work and you can't read while driving. I suppose that's a more realistic scenario. <laughs> you can listen. So that's super easy. Uh, they also had probably one you're less likely to have read. If you read Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, Total Recall, it's one, it's, it's, it's incredible. I have not read that one, no. Well, if you don't feel like reading it, they've also got it on Blinkist, um, which I was kind of surprised by because it's more of a, you know, traditional, whereas Buffett's book's a lot about investing and stuff. I felt Arnold Schwarzenegger's just his life story. But they even have that on there, which I thought was cool. Mm -hmm. So look, the first 100 people who go to Blinkist.com forward slash brain food, you'll get a week to try it out. You'll also get 25% if you want full membership. Uh, like I say, seven day free trial. Cancel at any time. If you're like, this isn't for me, but I think it will be for you. Again, Blinkist.com forward slash brain food. How was that? I saw that not, not bad for a live read. That was good. Although I'm going to be completely honest for like mm -hmm. half of that, your video feed cut out. And so I just was hoping you didn't ever like try to talk to me. And then I just kind of jumped right back in. Well, that's, you know, I, I just kept on rambling away. So if that happens at any point in this podcast, you say something and I completely ignore you. It's because yep. of that. Okay, great. <laughs> I love the technology issues. Uh, next yeah. next week, I think you had some problem with your internet. I had a little problem yeah. with my uh, my Wi-Fi and not being able to Ethernet. But I'll buy a yeah. little Ethernet cable and we'll get it sorted. It's going to be yeah. great. Yeah. Should we move on? I'm sure people have got sick of us talking about our technical troubles. They're here for facts. Yeah. All right. So today, what are we going to talk about for our main topic? And we are going to talk about Hawaiian pizza. And is it called Hawaiian pizza in Europe? Dude. Is it ever? It's one of my favorite yeah. pizzas, which I know is a controversial yeah. statement because people yeah. are like, Hawaiian pizza is weird. I feel like that's a meme. But Hawaiian, well, well, well I feel like you would like it. Yeah, no, I, I, it's fine. I don't see what the, what the problem is, really. Yeah. Um, there's, there are much worse pizzas out there. And, you know, people like what they like. You put, that's the whole point of pizza is you got this bread, which is delicious and cheese, and then you just add random stuff. Although I did have macaroni pizza once, and that was pretty disgusting. Like where I people put steak. the cheese and then macaroni on it not not great i had steak pizza from a domino's also not good you think steak yeah. and pizza and that's how they build it you're like that yep this is great it's my two favorite yeah. foods together as one and then it's like yeah the steak was really low quality like <laughs> fully cooked canned beef or something horrible yeah. um yeah. yeah domino's that one was that one was really yeah yeah but that's that's the that's the point is you can put random stuff and different people like stuff so we're gonna talk how did this get its start? So, obviously it started before June 8th, 2017, but that's a significant date in Hawaiian pizza history because that's when Canadian bread pizza maker Sam Panopoulos, he died. And so oh. why are we talking about Sam Panopoulos? And it turns out this is the guy who invented Hawaiian pizza. And by the way, this he was in Canada at the time. So technically, Hawaiian pizza is actually pizza Canadian. Is Canadian. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming there's he... some relationship to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. So how did he come to invent and then popularize pineapple pizza? And it turns out Mr. Panopoulos was not Canadian himself. He was uh, Greek, uh, which you might have guessed from his name. Uh, so mm. him and his two brothers in 1956, at the age of 20, they decided to head on over to America. And instead of going to like, uh, you know, the United States, like most people who had to, to head to the Americas, he instead chose Canada for some reason. Mm-hmm. But like really when you're immigrating, not a lot of people think, yeah, Canada, that's where I'm going. Uh, you know, especially around this time, you'd think most people would be pick the US, but either way. They go there. Before I, have to say, they, I don't know much about this period of history. We don't, you know. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it was like, no, I feel like the further back you go, they're probably like nowadays, a lot of people I think might be like, yeah, Canada. Canada's pretty <laughs> awesome. Got great health care, you know, all that sort of business. Um, I think Canada is like, it's cold, I think, in my mind. Yeah, so exactly. Like, you know, where's nice, you like want, California, Florida. You guys have like almost tropical weather in some parts of your country. That's pretty great. Yeah, you have every, everything yeah. you could want. But, but like, I just like Depending the on which part of the US you want to go to. Whereas Canada is like, you got cold and less cold, maybe. So before they, before they made it to, to Canada, um, they made a pit stop, though, in, uh, which was sort of a significant one because it was where Panopolis, they stopped in Naples, Italy. And here was where he took his first ever bite of pizza. And it was something that had like spaghetti on it, sort of like a spaghetti pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, didn't, he did not like it. And, uh, but it sounds like pizza was now on pizza. his right. It doesn't sound good at all. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, but this is what it was. And uh, pizza was now at least on his radar. First time he'd ever had it. So at this point, as you might guess from this, pizza wasn't really the delicacy that people think like Naples. They think like, uh, you know, pizza that's La where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but at this point, and this was the 1950s, which is just crazy to think pizza as like a staple food item among many parts of the world was not a thing even in the mid 20th century. Like it was still just sort of this local thing, which is just crazy to think about it because now it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You know, I eat um, pizza once a week at the minimum. Yeah. This is like Buffalo Wings too. Buffalo Wings, it was like the 1990s oh. before Buffalo Wings became popular. And it's just like, really? 1990s? Yeah. That is just insane. Going for wings tonight, man. A friend of mine's having a birthday party. This place has this wings night where the wings are like half price. Going to eat so many wings. It's going to be great. So pizza is claimed to have been invented in the 18th century, but this is sort of a matter of debate because if you actually go back to the Persian army in the 5th and 6th century BC, they used to like cook, they would use their shields and um, put some flatbread on to sort of like cook it in the sun. And then they would cover it in like cheese and dates and different things like that. And so some people consider, well, that's kind of like pizza, you know, you're putting the stuff on. So, um, but you know, uh, it didn't have tomato sauce, obviously, because that would not uh, be over there for quite some time. So but they put various things on and people have probably been adding, you know, bread and cheese together since as long as there has been bread and cheese. So depending on what your exact definition of pizza is, you know, that it's debated when it actually invented. But if we fast forward to uh, when Mount Vesuvius is leveling Pompeii on August 24th, 79 AD, uh, we have some interesting stuff that that gives us because archaeological excavation of the thing has shown places that had a lot of like things that are consistent with kind of what we use to make pizza today and pizzeria, pizzerias. So they had restaurants and or they had these places where, where things like this seem to be made. And we even have a cookbook by one Marcus Gavius Apicius, who um, has tons of recipes for various flatbread based items, food items. And one of them most notably here included, so he had flatbread with chicken, garlic, cheese, pepper, and oil on oh, top of it. And that is like, you're I mean, right. it, I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah, so an email before you recorded this one saying eat beforehand. I had a little bit of breakfast. Yeah. It wasn't enough. Yeah. Now I want pizza. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, yeah, you should try. You should try like working on these for hours and hours on end. So hungry. Doesn't matter if you eat because then like two hours later you're just hungry again because you're just researching delicious food all the time. Yeah. But so yeah, this thing it's best basically pizza as we think of it today. It just doesn't have traditional tomato sauce because that didn't come, of course, until the 1500s to Europe. And that actually, when it did initially come, uh, there was sort of a lot of people thought it was like poisonous and stuff. There was like this rumor thing that it was really bad tomatoes. But, and this, it's, <laughs> it's not really clear why this is the case, but it's thought maybe because the tomato is part of the nightshade family and they must have known those are poisonous. Mm, and you know. Yeah. And the same thing kind of happened to potatoes and um, eggplants are the same. Um, many peppers are part of the nightshade family, tobacco. So all Wasn't these things. And potatoes, they thought they were like sinful or something. What, what, what? Yeah, there, we're going to get into that when we get into the history of French fries. But yeah, potatoes had its own um, controversy. And the history of French fries is coming on a future episode of this everyday foods thing. You're just really torturing me. You're going to torture me for weeks. 
Yeah, like talking much. about French and, fries at 11 o'clock in the morning is not yeah. going to lead to a healthy lunch. No, no. Yeah, exactly. So bringing us back to maples. So they did eventually start using tomatoes there. And so they came up with what is what was known as Na- Napolitana pizza. And this yeah. was where they would they would just put like a tomato paste on there. And once tomatoes in there and you add cheese and then there you have a cheese pizza as we think of it today. So that a lot of people think, OK, that's when pizza was first made, um, despite, you know, cheese and bread. And, you know, if you don't have the tomato sauce, you can still have if you put like a white sauce on there and stuff, people still call that pizza. So I don't know. I, I think, feel that's uh, more I recent, in my, at least in terms of my consumption of pizza. Tomato pizza, tomato based pizza sauce was a thing forever. And then like mm-hmm. I recently had or, you know, maybe within the last 10 years, like cheese sauce instead or like uh mm-hmm. not a cheese sauce but like a cream sauce and then yeah. you know with onions and stuff that became yeah. a thing it's also pizza but tomato mm-hmm. sauce is kind of 90 yeah, percent of pizza, pizza i feel is that but like when you came here and we went to that, that didn't pizza, have tomato we had the, sauce no that was chicken bacon ranch that was a ranch sauce and it was it's so good that, <laughs> it was incredibly good i felt like i was eating about a billion calories Oh, totally. Like you definitely I mean, have a heart attack Lord. if you ate that recently, like often. And you got ranch on the side for dipping. Oh, yeah. You, you dip, dip it in a ranch, ranch based pizza into with, ranch sauce. It's the most, it was the most like, American experience I've ever had. Yeah. And like a thick layer of cheese. It had to be like the most unhealthy thing of all time. It's so good. So good. So good. So, yeah, at the time, though, when this pizza was at, at this point in history, according to University of Denver uh, history professor, Dr. Carol Elastosky. And she was the author of the book Pizza, A Global History. And she notes in there that pizza at this point was kind of like a weekday food is what she calls it. It was basically just a cheap item, you know, just cheap flatbread and whatnot that you just dump a ton of like whatever you got rent lying around. Um, So to quote Dr. Helstosky, It was a cuisine of scarcity. Whatever you had, you tossed on garlic, anchovies and little fish bits. That's kind of what I do. uh, Like when I make a pizza at home, I'll buy a few like basic ingredients and then I'll be like, I got some, you know, leftover anchovies. I got some weird pepper yeah. that's probably a bit too shriveled to have in a salad. I'll put that on. It'll yeah. be good. Yeah, you add cheese to anything and like bread, bread and cheese, it's it's going to be good. But as you can imagine with this sort of random ingredient thing, especially a lot of like random fish ingredients and stuff. So we have a quote from Samuel Morris, which is of Morse code fame in 1830s. And so he was in Naples visiting and he saw some of this pizza being sold on the streets. And he notes in disgust, a species of most nauseating cake, like a piece of bread that had been taken reeking of the sewer. All right, Morse, chill out. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe if it's like rotten the, fish or something. Like, yeah, but either way, so uh, but at this point, fish you... is delicious. Is it rotten <laughs> fish is what goes into, um, I want to say Worcester sauce. Worc- Worc- yeah, exactly. It is. And yeah. it's so gross when you read how that's made. It just sounds so disgusting. Like, it, yeah. you couldn't make it sound. It's like, why don't we just take the corpses of things and wait till it congeals <laughs> into this liquid mass and then we'll eat that. Yeah. Like, that's basically what you're, you know. It's delicious. You got there. I think they had like brown sugar and stuff, though, don't they? Or something like that. I can't remember now. Well, yeah. Um, but, yeah. You know, not, it's not just rotting fish. <laughs> but <laughs> it is. They basically add that, as well. put it in barrels, and then wait until it yes. into a nice... You, like, just, yeah. 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 It's really good. Yeah. Though. Yeah. So... So as you can imagine with this being, it was more like a poor people's food for much of history. And so the affluent really kind of turned their nose up at it. And so this supposedly, how did this change? And there's a story that you read everywhere that happened in the late 19th century, supposedly happened. So 1889, King Umberto and his cousin, Margarita, who also happened to be his wife, uh, were traveling. Yeah. Traveling the country. And they, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, they were sort of like trying to calm. There was lots of talk of revolution and everything. So they were trying to, whoa, people, you know, calm, calm, Steady your, on. calm yourself. Yeah. So they arrive in Naples. Don't forget and, how awesome I am. Yeah, exactly. They king. arrive in the Naples and they supposedly then uh, they've been eating a lot of like uh, French inspired cuisine, which is really rich and everything. So supposedly Queen Margarita, she wanted just something, you know, plain, something really simple. And so she ordered a commoner's meal from one Rafael Esposito, and he was a, a pretty famous pizza maker. And so he creates this supposedly new concoction of mozzarella, tomato sauce, and basil on, you know, flatbread and everything. Mm-hmm. So this was sort of, you know, this became known, of course, as Margarita's Pizza or Pizza Margarita. 
And so this is supposedly this happens. This 1889 again is the date. And this, she loved it, and then supposedly went on to popularize it among the wealthy. And also, uh, Esposito himself was then dubbed the father of modern pizza because of this whole story that goes around. But is any of this story actually true? And the uh, the truth is that this this exact concoction, this type of pizza, pizza margarita, had actually been around long before then. Um, so if we go all the way back to 1849, there's, again, this is almost like a half century before, uh, we have Emmanuel Rocco, and he has what is, um, is mozzarella, and he uh, is this exact same thing, and he has mozzarella on it, though. Key here is arrayed out in a flower shape. This is what it said you have to do for the pizza margarita, and what's significant about that is that the word for daisy is was margarita, and so this is sort of an alternate uh, uh. hypothesis as to how it got its name, and this, again, was like a half century before, and it was this exact same uh, ingredients and everything on there. Um, so, but... If it had been around, maybe the queen really did go and order this pizza from Esposito. And maybe this was actually a thing, but even if it wasn't named after her. And maybe then she did popularize it among the wealthy. What was the, do we fact, know what the source of it is? Or is it just one of those re often repeated myths? Or like yeah, I don't stories? Know. This, well, it's actually Esposito's descendants actually repeat this. And you can actually go, what we're going to talk about here is there is a letter in the place, Pizzeria Brandy, which is still around today, which was the his descendants change the name Whoa. but uh so they have a they have a letter from the queen with the official royal seal on display if you go to this pizzeria and you can see that also we also know officially that esposito really did receive permission to display the royal seal in his shop and so this is often put as oh that's he definitely did make this pizza and then you know she really did popularize it among the wealthy but if you dig into the matter more as we do here so yeah. raphael esposito, it's probably not as simple as that is uh, it? no he got this permission to display the royal seal in 1871, which is like almost two decades before this supposed queen event, and for his shop that did not sell pizza, but sold wine. And so this is when he got the permission for the, for the thing. So that doesn't quite line up. And then the problems with the letter itself. So if you look at the letter, supposedly written by the queen in 1889, thanking him for mm. this pizza and everything. Uh, first... If you look at the date on the letter, there is no record of such a letter being sent in the palace archives. And you might think, well, maybe they just didn't write it down. But if you actually look at the palace archives on the very day, they wrote down everything. Like even like the who got paid that day, like every correspondent that went in and out. And there's no record of that letter ever happening. And then if we move on from there, the royal seal itself, if you look very closely at the actual royal seal and then the one on the letter, they're, they're, they're close. They're extremely similar, but they're not the same. And also, mm -hmm. on top of that, it was clearly stamped on and not printed, as was the actual royal co correspondence at the time were always printed on. But so, he got permission to post it in his shop. Well, this was, again, he got permission to post the royal seal like two decades before this letter supposedly happened. So, did this letter actually come from the queen? And so, the other thing to note here is on top of that, it was not on the official stationery used by the queen at the time. And on top of that... On written on top instead was House of Her Royal Majesty, just handwritten in for some reason. This was not the way it was done in the official correspondence. And so also, if you look at letters from the Queen and the handwriting on this one and the general format and a signature, they don't match. Dude, I like, think you've done it. Like, yeah. pretty sure it's no, not real. No, they, they, there's a smoking gun to all of this. It's like, nope, definitely not real. Already dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but if you wanted more proof, the smoking gun is the person who wrote the letter started it by writing... Dear Mr. Rafael Esposito, Brandy. And Brandy was Esposito's wife's name. He did not ever use that name himself, like ever. So why would the queen address him this way? But you know who did use that name is his brother-in-law's sons who took over the restaurant in 1932. And dun, when they dun, took it dun. over, <laughs> yeah. And so when they took it over, they did change the name because at the time it had been named the Pizzeria of the Queen of Italy. But before this whole event with the queen was supposed to, this is just what he called it even before then. Um, so that that couldn't have been connected with any queen visit. And when they did, they started trying to connect it with, you know, they did have their famous pizza, pizza making um, uncle. And so they, they tried to connect it with lots of eminent guests who supposedly went there. Maybe the queen did go there. Who knows at some point. So but if they had used the letter of just Esposito's name and not put Brandy on it, then no one would have known like Esposito who like this is Brandy, right? This is Pizzeria Brandy. What does Esposito have to do with anything? Um, so it would appear that they just made up this letter and then they added brandy to make the connection between their current restaurant and the other and then displayed it. So as you might expect from this, most I'm going to put up a letter, letter in my studio, you know, yeah. from the Queen of England. The queen, this is the yeah. finest podcast and YouTube studio I've ever seen. 
signed yeah. a royal majesty. It's about yeah. got as much legitimacy as this letter. Yeah, yeah, it would, it would seem so. I mean, the letter is super old, right? I mean, it's like almost the century old at this point when the... When the All right, the, so in a uh, hundred years, this letter will be even... Yeah. It will be somehow less yeah. fake. Yeah. So the real, the real, how did the pizza actually go from like a poor people's food to rich people? And it just probably, it just seems to have happened over time. There doesn't seem to be like anything like the queen being like, yeah, this is awesome. Because pizza over time, you know, you got different types thrown on, different types who made some of it's really delicious. So of course the rich people are going to start people just realize this is amazing. <laughs> we should all be eating yeah. this. Yeah. It's handy. You can carry it around on the go and like, oh, there's all sorts of, and it's quick to make. It's awesome. So it's cheap as well. Although yeah, I suppose if you're cheap. rich, it doesn't matter. But it's yeah. still nice. But, yeah. Like you feel like you're getting it is a good nice. deal. Yeah, when you're like feeding lots of people. To, I mean, that's like what one of the things pizza is good for. So in the dawn of the 20th century, pizza did make its way over to North America, but it wasn't really popular uh, at this point. Uh, it wasn't like a, really a thing. And so until the 1950s, it started to become a little more noticeable. Like the Italian-American community, would, would pizza was a thing. But outside of that, it really wasn't a thing in North America. And so this sort of started to change. So you have like Harry, uh, Harry Warren and Jack Brooks' 1952 song uh, sung by Dean Martin called... Uh, that's Amore. It was in the Caddy, the 1953 film Caddy. Um, so it's got that, you know, moon hit your eye like a big pizza pie. And so this, mm-hmm. this at the time, like we think of that now, we all oh, understand I know that, that song. Yeah. And, but at the time, people, a lot of people listening it. were probably like, what's a pizza pie? You know, like, what, what, what's that? You know? Well, I feel like that's what they call pizza in old movies. Like, we're going to have a pizza pie. Yes. So this 1950s, it's sort of like a, like starting to become peripherally, like something that American people are starting to realize is a thing, but not really popular anywhere. So this all brings us back to Sam Panopoulos and Hawaiian pizza. So mm-hmm. he's arriving in Ontario in a town called Chatham. I'm going to guess it's pronounced Chatham. Uh, and uh, about, it's about an hour's Chatham, drive from... But I don't know. It's probably yeah. named after Chatham in the UK, which is close to where oh, I okay. grew up. It's kind of rough in Chatham, but I don't know, maybe in... Canada that changed the name. Yeah, no, I'm like sure you're, you're probably right. But. Yeah, you're probably right though. But either way, it's a it's um it's about an hour's drive from the U.S. Michigan border. So in 1956, they go there, they open a diner, his, him and his brothers, uh, and they call it. It's called the Satellite. It's still there actually, but um not uh, different management obviously. And so this, they they kind <laughs> of really made some old. interesting. Oh wait, and he died recently. He could have been doing yeah, it. in 2017. Yeah, uh, it could have been like his kids or something. But no, no, he and he and he sold it in like the 1970s. But um, either way, so at the time, he had a rather eclectic. They decided to go with. So instead of like serving what anyone else would serve, they they serve things like Chinese food, um, which I mean nowadays would be common, but at the time wasn't really a thing too much outside of like Chinese communities. Obviously, it wasn't like a popular thing. So they're serving Chinese food, but alongside Chinese food, they're serving burgers and they're serving Spanish rice with fried eggs and then various random Greek delicacies and then also pizza. So it's just like this completely random, like it was stuff seemingly specifically chosen because it was stuff that no one else served, you know, around in the reason. And so he actually talks about it in an interview in 2015 with Atlas Obscura, which is a great website people should check out. He talks about the, uh, the, it's just like a pizza at the time. There was nowhere like the Windsor or Detroit was about the closest place you could get pizza, which is about 50 miles away from his restaurant. So he describes this here. The pizza in Canada in those days was primitive, you know, dough, sauce, cheese, and mushroom, bacon, or pepperoni. That was it. You had no choices. You get one of three toppings or more of them together. Dude, this is killing me. Ah, I feel, I'm, I'm, I feel like I need to get on Uber Eats and order a pizza right now. But I'm not yeah. going to. You should then it'll probably be done out there, there around the time we get we yeah, get done here. Yeah. So yeah, so again, he's attempting to distinguish his fare. So he goes ahead and serves customers pizza with things like uh Vienna sausage, rice, olives, rice really on pizza. But yeah, he's throwing random stuff on here basically. <laughs> so I'm just kind of whatever really bad rice. <laughs> yeah. And so he's just throwing lots of random stuff. It's a it's sort of a weird restaurant. How does this restaurant survive? He's like, let's serve stuff that no one's ever heard of. Is it around today <laughs> in this form? I assume it's, I assume not. I assume, okay. I don't know. I, they apparently it's still out. there. So in 1962, he decides to experiment further and he puts pineapple and ham on a pizza and calls it the Hawaiian, which uh, Panopolis, he says, was named after just the brand of canned pineapple that he used. It was, a, it was just Hawaiian pineapple from, oh. that was the label on the can, so he just called it Hawaiian pizza because he's putting it on his pizza. Um, as for the inspiration, he notes, Those days, nobody was mixing sweets and sours and all that. The only sweet and sour thing you would get is Chinese pork, you know, with the sweet and sour sauce. Other, there was no mix. Oh, God, this is also so good. Sweet and sour Chinese. Ah, oh, 
Yeah. And uh, so he I is serving two things from Uber Eats. He is serving Chinese food there. So he get you know, that's sort of his, his thing. So, um, so with regards to the pizza, he stated, we just put it on just for the fun of it. See how it was going to taste. We were young in the business and we were doing a lot of experiments. He was probably also, he doesn't mention this, but uh, if you look at the 1950s and 1960s, what was happening around that time was the Americanized version of tiki culture was just like sweeping through North America. And it was it was primarily spurred by all the people coming back from like the Pacific Theater World War II. And so they were had all this like, you know, bringing like the barrels of rum, girls in hula, hula skirts and tiki torches and all that was like a thing that was like a major thing being, you know, popularized. So this could have also possibly helped him sort of inspired to, to make like a Hawaiian pizza. And it's noteworthy here. So this tiki culture thing to us, it's just like, yeah, tiki, tiki, right? Like tiki torches, that's just fun. But a lot of this is actually kind of considered pretty culturally offensive to a lot of people because you have like, it's basically, uh, as one person put it, what did they put? Like, um, so it would be like equivalent if you had fruity alcoholic beverages complete with umbrellas and cross straws, all served drinking glasses made in shape of Jesus and Muhammad's head, and then maybe throw in some Buddha statues and then calling it Jer- Jewish culture. I'm okay with that. But then I'm not any yeah. of these religions. So I guess that's yeah. why I'm okay with that. But <laughs> That's sort of the uh, analogous to what the tiki bars do. You know, like it's just, yeah. Either way, people, people, some people don't like that. But um, in any event, regardless of anyone's feelings. Yeah. So in the 1950s, this was super, uh, like this made pineapples started. Although I'm thinking like a Jesus head cup would be pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Or I'm, yeah, that one, I think people wouldn't get as offended, but try having like a Muhammad uh, uh, cup. Well, is it you offensive know? to have a, I don't know. Like, I they think have you'd all have these, more of a, of a backlash. I went to not Sri from Lanka like most people. And they had all these things at the airport saying like, Buddha is not decoration. So don't buy like a Buddha statue oh, yeah. as decoration. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. But, yeah, when, but see, if you had a Buddha statue, I don't feel like anyone's going to get like super upset at you because it's oh, like they the whole... there. They were like, there was pretty like big signs everywhere. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to, you know, do anything. <laughs> you have like a Buddha yeah. statue in your Chinese restaurant yeah. or whatever, but yeah. yeah, it was a bit weird. Yeah. No, but you can, you can sort of see the, the, um, the issue with some people. Have I get it. it. But either way, I get it. Either way. So you got 1950s pineapples were starting to become very popular and all this. And so he could, you know, you can see how maybe that was part of his inspiration for the Hawaiian pizza. And whether, whether, whether that was sort of some of his thought process to capitalize on the sort of the trend going on, uh, he, he did it. And then he noted when it debuted. Nobody liked it at first, but after that, they went crazy about it. Yeah, it did catch on all over the place after that and just kind of spread from there and became quite uh, ubiquitous a few decades later. So an interesting aside here, so moving mm-hmm. on from there, the pineapples. Pineapple, super cheap. You just throw it on the pizza. Nobody thinks like it doesn't add cost. It's not like you're paying like a hundred bucks for a pineapple pizza compared to the other types. But it turns out in the sixth between the 16th and 18th centuries, this was pineapple was like insanely expensive. And there's no good way to like really translate like for that gap and then like different regions and stuff like how expensive was it? But generally, like when you look at the general ballpark and like look at inflation and all that, it's like five to ten thousand dollars per mm. pineapple was what people were basically paying for these things. And the reason being, it turns out pineapples are really, really hard to grow outside of their native environment, uh, that tropical environment. So when Christopher Columbus, he's the first one to bring it back in 1493 to Europe, they tried to cultivate it and, you know, grow new ones and just universally failed. No one could do it. Mm -hmm. And so you had to import it then from the Americas. But the problem is it's a fruit, right? And so if you want to import it in its sort of like normal, you pick it off the the plant form, you end up having to get it back mm-hmm. really quick and kind of keep it so it can't be too hot and stuff like that. And the ships and stuff like that, or it'll just rot and stuff like that. So you need really good weather and you need a really fast ship to get it back in time to be like consumable <laughs> in that form. Like they can obviously do other forms like of it. And, and people are all like today eat form. local and all this stuff. It's like the guys back in the day, they were like, yeah. quick, send my fastest sloop <laughs> to bring me, bring me some pineapple. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, exactly. So you had, as you can imagine from this, <laughs> it like had to be 17 super... people died bringing you this pineapple, my leash. <laughs> yeah, worth it. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, this only, only Royals the, back in the, the day super probably legit said stuff like that. Well, yeah, because sugar and things, sweet things like that were really expensive, you know, and this is like pineapple is super sweet and kind of unique tasting in a lot of ways. You don't really get a lot of different fruits that taste like that or things you make. So yeah, they, you had to be like ex- super, super wealthy to 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 get it. But then 
the Dutch figured out in the late 17th century, the Dutch finally figured out, and it's thought like Agnes Block is this woman, she is considered to be the first to actually figure out how to cultivate some pineapple in 1687. So, but there, there were some other plants that people had done, but people thought it was actually brought from like a juvenile plant and then they just managed to keep it alive and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, around this time, 11th, uh, late 17th century, uh, they come up with this. Um, uh, so the more documented one is this Dutch cloth merchant by the name of Pieter de la Corte, who he came up with a way to grow pineapples in a non-tropical climate consistently. And so what he did is he utilized all these different hot rooms consistently. So he basically had to keep it really warm and humid, but not too hot and not too cold and not just the air. You had to keep the, the soil temperature a certain within a very specific range or the pineapple would die. And the problem with this was, of course, you know, using fires and stuff to keep a consistent temperature. You know, you had to constantly be adjusting it based on the ambient temperature and get everything. So it was like not easy. And you got to get enough light too for the thing to grow in the first place. And so basically what ended up happening is people killing the plants with smoke was a common thing. And then just burning down the, the hot room building was also a pretty common thing. So it was still super expensive. But now you didn't have to be like a king to get it. Now you could just be like a really wealthy merchant, you mm-hmm. know, to get a hold of a pineapple in some regions. So yeah, so what ended up happening is then the um, lots of different courts from around, particularly like in England, would send people to the Netherlands to learn how to make these things. And so we come back to the to, to England. And even then, it took until 1714 to 1716, around then, before someone actually successfully managed to grow a pineapple in England. So this was, a you know, a couple decades later. I assume today um, they're all the, just grown in the tropics, right? And then put on big ships with, you know, yeah, better you would, cooling probably technology, like, right? Yeah, you would probably, I would guess. Because I can't know, imagine I, there's like many of these like, magical hot yeah, rooms like, in England growing pineapples. Yeah, especially because it would just make it so expensive versus just ship, putting on a big shipping <laughs> right. container, like you say, and getting because you can get it over faster, too, in that way. But um, yeah, presumably. Yeah. So there's a, a Dutchman called Henry Talende. He was the one that first did it and managed it in England. And he was working for a guy named Matthew Decker. And so he um, his first doing of this like his first managed to cultivate the the pineapple here they actually commissioned the painting to commemorate it in 1720 yeah. um which and if you look if anyone's ever noticed if you go back to a lot of these classic paintings from this era they were pictures of pineapples it was like a thing that would just be like randomly like oh there's a pineapple and it was because it was this just like extreme like sh- like flex of wealth like yeah i got a pineapple no big deal um, <laughs> hell so, yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you just put it in your paintings, like in the background. Yeah, it's just a pineapple sitting on a shelf, no big deal. Also, um, if you uh, if you walk around London, you'll see um, on staircases and stuff. You know, at the end of a banister, you might yeah. have like uh, an object. Often, it's a pineapple. Yeah, because it was like so insanely valuable yeah. and rare and everything. So even then, so you got to end this guy's method. So to, to sort of illustrate how complicated this was, so pineapple he has this. Flex. He has, he, yeah. Next episode, I'm just getting so a pineapple and just sitting on the desk. <laughs> yeah, just in the background. Like, yeah. maybe even just in the trash, you know, just like sticking out of the trash. Like, whatever. I don't just need that pineapple. casually snacking on it. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. So you have these hot houses that he made. So he would have these tan pits lined with pebbles. And then on top of the pebbles, he would place manure. And then on top of that, he would have uh, tanner's bark, which he would put, which was oak bark soaked in water. And then on top of that, he would put a pot containing the, the pineapple plant with some soil and everything. So the manure itself, the problem was, was too hot. You know, it kept things too hot. So the, the tanner's part kind of helped regulate it and even it out and everything. And then that this method that he came up with would keep it reasonably consistent and everything for, for temperatures. So mm-hmm. even, even, with the, even with this, as you can imagine, it was still really hard to get a hold of pineapple, but it was possible now. You could do it. And so it became sort of an ornament at parties and everything. So um, like it, to the point where a lot of people, you know, maybe you want to bring a pineapple to a party. You can't afford to actually buy the pineapple. <laughs> so people started renting the pineapples out. So they'd rent it out for like a week, you know, just and you'd rent it for a few hours at a time. Like just go carry a pineapple to a party or, you know, you just got it on display. No one's allowed to eat it. You're allowed to look at it, touch it, you know, stuff like that. But you can't eat it because you're just renting it. You're not. And then eventually when it when it got, you know, close to being and you're fully ripe and everything. And you at this party? Would, yeah, it's a bit weird. Really, or set, set it on a shelf, you know, it's just like, hey, yeah. Well, you know, you wear like a diamond necklace. You're like, hey, check out my pineapple, you know. <laughs> and it was, an, it was a novelty item. So people were like curious. It's a pretty unique looking. Someone's fruit. like, can I try it? No, 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 don't touch it. Yes, yeah, don't eat it. And so eventually after it would reach maturity, then they would just sell it. But before they would sell it, they would, you know, rent it out to be to be carried around and whatnot so by people who couldn't actually afford to buy it. So 
people love the look too. It wasn't just the taste. This is again, bringing it to party or having it on display. People love the, the look. So like Charles II, he loved pineapples in general. And he also referred to it as the king pine because I, I don't know, presumably because it's expensive and also because he thought it looked like it was wearing a crown or whatever. Mm. So he was big on it. And so you have, but also, so you have 16th century Spanish historian Gonzalo Fernandez de Ovidio y Valdez. He states of the pineapple look. I do not suppose that there is in this whole world any other so exquisite and lovely appearances. My pen and my words cannot depict such exceptional qualities nor appropriately blazon this fruit so as to particularize the case fully and satisfactorily without the brush or the sketch. I mean, pineapples look cool, dude, but I mean, it's yeah, a pineapple. It's a little like- it's excessive, but you know, people, if you've never seen a pineapple before and you're like, whoa, what is this thing? Yeah. Describe you know, but, it to me uh, in words. Yeah. So, you know, they liked it. Art- artists, architects liked it. So yeah. Um, <laughs> Today, I don't know. It's kind of spiky, I guess. Yeah. It's got some leaves sticking out the top yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. So, so you have like, have you ever seen the Dunmore pineapple? Like the Scotland's famous, was commissioned in 1761. By no, the Earl wait, of I looked up the, the previous painting of the, 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 the pineapple, the first pineapple. I didn't look this up. Yeah. The Dunmore pineapple, if people want to look, it it's this right basically, now. I mean, yeah, Google it. You'll see it's just this structure, this building, just got like a, you know, when you might have like oh, a wow. curved top, like almost, yeah. And it's just a pineapple on it's the top. A giant pineapple sticking out the top. Yeah. It's like, that's like the ultimate flex. Like, yeah, my house, pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> right there. But he's also like, yeah, it's um, cheaper than an actual pineapple. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. We, you know, built it with slaves. <laughs> um, <laughs> But either way, so next time you're ordering a pizza, you think it's an interesting dichotomy here because you have this food item that was for four people and then you're putting on top of it little bits of things that not that long ago would have been only the exceptionally wealthy in much in, in parts of the world could have afforded. You're just casually putting it on, you know, your poor food person item. Like, yeah, I'm putting pineapple. It's like you're, I feel just yeah. next time you go to the supermarket, just appreciate that a couple hundred years yeah. ago, someone was paying 10 grand for the pineapple that you're buying for, what, two, three yeah. bucks? And let's just face it, it's probably, if you're buying like the pineapple, like the whole pineapple, it's probably just going to sit on your shelf till it rots and you're like, oh, I'll throw it away. Yeah. You know? Because, yeah. you know, that's that what happens. I forgot to eat that pineapple. <laughs> Back <laughs> exactly. in the day, no one forgets that you have a pineapple. <laughs> no, exactly. So that is the show today. Uh, I love it. Even despite our minor technical difficulties. Which maybe will yeah, be added sure out that- of the audio version, but will be present in the, the live version. Yeah, we also yeah. broadcast this on YouTube. Uh, anyway, this has been the Brain Food Show. Leave us a review if you fancy doing that. Uh, we are giving away a $1,000 Amazon gift voucher when we get to a 1,000 reviews. So please do that. We'll choose one lucky winner when that happens. Join us next time for another fascinating origins of food. Are we doing French fries next? Maybe. I might need yeah, to Yeah, definitely a food item time. of some sort. Yeah, totally. You should. Yeah. Yeah, or just order a pizza. Actually, yeah. have it. Well, although it won't be about pizza, order some fries. But delivery fries suck generally. I've um, yeah, they don't stay fresh enough. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been fun. This has been the Brain Food Show. We will see you all, or speak to you all, or you will listen to us, I suppose, very soon. Quick, send my fastest sloop. <laughs>